I think that we have sort of turned the corner on inflation. And here's why I, I think this. The Bank of Canada did absolutely nothing. They were super slow to react. But now, inflation is slowing a little. But what did they think was going to happen? A small increase takes a long, long, long time to trickle through all levels of the market. They're turning the knob every single month as if what like magically it's going to stop things overnight. It doesn't work that way. But I think we're already at a point where if they just did nothing more, they're probably already there because they've broken the housing system and then break employment. All right, welcome to episode 40. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. We are 41. Over 41? Cheapers. We are over 80% through the year. That's disgusting. This is the Master Keys podcast, Atlanta, Canada's number one real estate investing podcast, taking over the world. Appreciate the support. Love you guys. I'm Chandler Halliburton. I'm Neil Andrino. As always, if you find anything interesting in today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe. Uh, we're getting some good feedback on returning visitors and all that stuff. But we also are seeing the algorithm that some of you are watching and not pressing that like button and not subscribing. If you like the content, Press like, press like, because we got some crazy stuff going on today uh, in the news, fun stuff. Um, but we're also going to go into new construction, right? Yeah, yeah. Today we're going to talk about kind of well, we've we've talked about how we think the Burr model might be temporarily dead. It's not dead forever, um, unless the deal's amazing. It's it's a lot harder to get that to go all the way across the line. Yeah, and so you. Still need to keep moving your business along, and we still need more housing inventory. So we thought we'd dive a little bit into new construction, some of the stuff that we've faced, where we think things are going, and then kind of just the high-level process of what that looks like uh, for all of you that are interested in continuing to grow your business and, and maybe make the transition from buying old product to new product. Yeah, so if any time if you've got a project that you have questions about, because this actually kind of came from a, a listener's question asking us why we haven't gotten into new development and things like that, uh, we're going to unpack some of that here today. So if you have questions, comments, put them down below. But I'm going to start off with some amazing friggin' news. Hit me. We've, we've done it. We've beaten inflation. I've got the great news. Oh my God. Like, for those of you struggling out there that are trying to make ends meet, worried about prices, uh-huh. On an earnings call, one of the big execs mm. for Costco mm. um, stated that despite inflation <sighs> and rising costs, they are not going to change the, the, the pricing for the $1.50 hot dog and pop combo. That thing is locked in. So here we are, man. One big, big win for the people. So I didn't I didn't dive into it, um, but you I didn't did. Dive into it. There's nothing to dive into. No. That's the story. Well, why, why don't they change the price? Because, man... They're just, they know how much people love that damn hot dog. There's, pop no, there's more 50. to it. There's more to it. But the... There, there's how are you going to make a conspiracy out of a $1.50 hot dog? It's not there's more to it, Neil says. It's not a conspiracy. They're not giving hot dogs out. So two things. The second I saw this, I saw this a couple days ago, like pop by like on my phone about it. Yeah. And in my head, I was just like, I can see in the future, there's just going to be giant lineups out, out in front of Costco because... You just can't eat anywhere else affordably. And yeah, so literally it's like, like the propane lineup during the hurricane. It's yeah, gonna be the hot dog lineup. Lunch hour, every lunch hour, just everyone is gonna go to Costco. And outside there's me guys selling hot dogs for a buck seventy five and you can they're oh going inside God. buying a hundred Costco hot dogs, then they're going outside and like, look, you can skip the line, but it's twenty five cents more. Yeah. And is a this hot gonna, dog markup. The future is this gonna become Costco you and see, just people buying these damn hot dogs. Man, you took a nice feel good story and you turned it into hot dog price gouging. I <laughs> I I wanted to see, but what was their logic on why they keep it there? there? Like, I've, everything else went up. I think um, it's sort of a good faith gesture. I mean, like, you know what? This is like a staple. This is something that people associate with our brand. We're going to keep doing it. This is since the 80s that it's been buck fifty. Yeah, that was pricey back in the 80s. You were paying full freight for that. <laughs> you were, that was, so they made all their money in the they're 80s. They're also a good-sized hot dog. And they're good-tasting hot dogs. Like, yeah. their food is all good. This is now a paid ad for Costco. Their um, poutine? 
their pizza, their chicken wings. Oh, the chicken fingers. Remember when they used to pre-cook the chicken wings and get them? I don't know if... They, someone told me the other day that they're still... Pre- anyway. I'm going there tonight. We're getting no. sidetracked. Um, but it's phenomenal, phenomenal u- uh, news for the fight against inflation and fru- food pricing. Uh, those hot dogs are still available. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see here how they're doing this. Sorry, I, uh, I'm totally... Yeah, nervous. you're really diving into this. I, I feel like also, and I was reluctant to talk about this, but if we're going to start hyper-locally here, yeah. um, the Dal Homecoming chaos i made a video um where i kind of joke but was half serious about how dal maybe doesn't hate the fact that these students are partying just off campus because it is crushing the value of some of those neighborhoods like i know for sure unequivocally unequivocally that some uh, homeowners have sold out of that neighborhood because they are fed up with their neighborhood being overrun as a student party uh, Isn't that block. weird? Like where it finally like turns around. It's like it used to be a good thing to be in like a student neighborhood, and now it's like wait a second, this is too studenty, and then it's gonna switch around. But dude, but there's like four thousand people there partying. Ultimately, all the houses will just get converted into multi units, and then my theory was though that Dow is gonna swoop in and buy those out because Dow's in a big argument with the Heritage Advisory Committee True. right now because of a home that they bought on Edward Street or a couple homes I don't know that they're planning to demolish. And that is a residential area, and Dal has expanded. If you look at it from University Ave, like they pushed all the way towards South, they're all the way down to Oxford now. Then the next thing is, you know, they pushed all the way to Coburg. They're going to push to Jubilee at some point, oh, in totally. one fashion or another. Um, so one person thought I was being crazy, but I don't think it's that crazy. Speaking of conspiracies, I think my hot dog one makes more sense, but on the on I'd that pay same buck seventy five for hot dog right now. I'm not going to lie, I'm hungry. <laughs> but, but that's on that same note. Um, in that whole district, what's this whole deal about taking the corner stores that the shutdown at eleven? That one I posted about because I yeah. thought that was a bit ridiculous that they can pass something like that through so easily. When they did a poll within the neighborhood, and they sent out a, a a letter to whatever it was twenty five of the residents that live within a block of it, and only two responded in favor. So I. Let me see if I want to. Who responded in favor? And that's yeah. enough to then change the hours and effectively just nuke those businesses. And I know both of those businesses, I think both, if not one for sure, I drove by recently. They gutted and renovated the whole place. Like they did a whole new facade on the outside, a whole new interior. Like they've re- invested into that sure. business. Um, so I have a connection to this area because I used to buy the penny candies at um, the pharmacy up the road. I think they penny call it Jubilee candies. Junction now. Yeah, you get penny candies. You know, you get a little bag for like 50 cents, you get all these candies. No wonder you're uh, when I'd walk up like from the leg. Uh, and then I lived on Preston Street, the corner of Preston and Jubilee, and we had parties back then and got noise complaints. Um, and that <laughs> they're very modest compared to this. The whole thing about closing like this loophole. So um, effectively... Corner stores that exist in residential areas uh, are not supposed to be open past 11. Why these ones were allowed beyond that, I'm not really quite sure. But they're effectively just reinforcing something that's already in the zoning now for these these strips. Uh, and it were really those corner stores built predating that. 11 oh yeah, PM yeah, rule? yeah. Okay. Um, and and I think that this was a way or to curb this student activity through a back channel, which is those areas. Because, uh, you know, Jubilee Junction, AAA, like that has become this hub uh, because they're open till three o'clock. It is like a pizza corner that's not on pizza corner. It's it's down on Jubilee. So by closing that earlier, the city thought this would be a way to mitigate some of the student after hours drinking behavior in this neighborhood. It's kind of like you you take something away over here to prevent the actual thing that you want to treat over there. Mm. Um 
And it really does only affect these two businesses, but it does affect those businesses. But don't you kind of understand, like, if you lived in that area, you tell me you have no sympathy for people. No, and, I- and that is an old area. The people that live there tend to be senior. Uh, there's either students, they're either 19 or they're 65. There's like no in between. <laughs> um, do you not somewhat sympathize for them? I, symp- I sympathize a little bit, but not like a ton for this. I, I'm sorry, I do, but I don't because it's not every night. Like this is, okay, it's homecoming. It's, it's the opening of the school for the year. They don't have big parties like this all the time. That that Those corners are busy on like a Friday and a Saturday during the school year and when i say and not on like a winter day it's only in the fall and potentially near the end of the school year so it's like probably two months of the year they're getting friday and saturdays and when by busy they're like maybe 10 people standing on the corner right maybe 20 people like and to be honest with you i've gone there a bunch of times and i'm not not as a student but because it's the only thing that's open (laughs) (laughs) it's the only thing that's open at like 2 a.m to get some food uh sometimes and so i don't know i think it's a bit of a a burst out on like a super specific event on the same note, like specific events downtown cause downtown to become an absolute gong show. And even in other neighborhoods, there's things that go on that go crazy. So I, I don't know. What do you think of my conspiracy theory that Dal might not hate it because they can slowly creep? I don't think that's conspiracy. That I, think, I, I think there's definitely some people that are like, this isn't the worst thing in the world. And they are aggressively trying to buy more real estate and they, cause they're struggling with housing. Like that's becoming, and it's big money for them. It's big money for them. First of all, they make money on the housing, but it's even bigger that they are now struggling because people are deciding to go to other schools because they cannot get housing at this school. Like they are losing a student body because of that and a bunch of schools are facing this around canada um but dal is, is really getting beat up on it and then the, the city on top well, of that I mean, has doubled down be, on the heritage this can't side be great for the reputation either bunch of heritage stuff's making national news so if you're a parent you're like oh yeah, i'm gonna send my kid out to dal man what's funny to me is like when i was in university dal was not this cool like it was That's not a party school um you know and and now it is but anyway i don't want to go into that too long it's super hyper local people may not care about it but I don't know. It's interesting, and it does have a real estate element to it because it's affecting property values in those areas. Speaking of real estate thing that I'm going to say is semi-hyper-local but definitely went national, if not international, is Hurricane Fiona. Oh, yeah. We never really talked about that either. We've never talked about that, but that was something that just happened here a week ago. I missed it completely. <laughs> yeah, Neil was on vacay. <laughs> Color me surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was out in the harsh weathers of Italy at <laughs> dealing... No, I'm not going to be un- insensitive, but the Hurricane Fiona hit while we were gone, or while I was gone. You were here more to experience it. It, it yeah. seemed like it missed Halifax a bit more. It, it definitely rocked Halifax, but Cape Breton... Seems yeah, like, Cape like, Breton just before the causeway got smoked. And then got, PEI got smoked. And literally houses got Ooh. washed into the ocean. Yeah. Um, the PEI, I would like to see like how much landmass did they lose. I saw a satellite image post Fiona and like the whole ocean around PEI is like it's that reddish sand because yeah. all their sand gets washed away. And like they already have an erosion problem, but they must have lost like 3% of their landmass over the course of a night. Yeah. Um, yeah, scary stuff, man. And And this was the first one where I was like, legitimately concerned about my properties and maybe it's because i have more properties now than i used to but i don't know there was something a little bit different about this one and they keep calling things like oh it's a generational storm it's like well it hasn't been a full generation really removed (laughs) from some of these other storms Uh, and now ian like ian just smoked florida uh, florida the other day that was no joke Uh, i actually have a little story here i don't know if you're a hemingway fan but the hemingway house um, got hit up pretty hard by um, Hurricane Ian. Um, but uh, 
anyway, people were curious about it because he's got like 60 cats that live there, um, and but the cats are safe. So anyone wondering about the Hemingway House in Florida, the cats were saved. The Yeah, so shout out to everyone who's a landlord or homeowner, and if you got affected negatively, like, feels for you. It's It sucks. It's it's crazy. Um, the one thing that I think it's worthwhile chatting about a little bit, and I haven't dove into it too much recently, but insurance policies in this situation. Oh, man. Um, like, they don't cover all of this. Like, don't just assume because you have insurance. And then your house gets washed away that you just get a new house. I like had you someone don't always get a new house out of this. Like overland yeah. flooding is something that a lot of policies don't cover. I also had someone kind of like, I, I can't remember who it was, so I don't remember the exact details, but they were having an argument with their insurance company because their insurance company was saying it was an act of God. This is, And it's like, well, when did these insurance companies get so religious... Uh, you know, like that, that seems <laughs> like a weird, it, there's a profit to it. catch all, but, um, you missed out this, you missed out on this, but, um, you know how it goes where everyone leaves their home insurance to the last minute. Yep. So insurance companies stopped taking on new clients leading up to the hurricane. And so if you had a closing right around the hurricane date and you're like, oh shoot, I got to go around and get, get around to getting insurance. They were not taking new policies. I didn't miss out because I had a refi coming on the Friday of Fiona and they wouldn't update my policy for the refi yeah so my refi got frozen i had two refis that got frozen that got pushed the next <laughs> week because of fiona too i my insurance guys like, was over in italy waiting for that bag to drop <laughs> <laughs> and and they they hit me with they called me and they're like good news no problem raising the limit bad news is i can't write your policy because all new policies got yeah, frozen, frozen due yeah. to the hurricane yeah, there was an agent in my office the other day who um, the bank required an appraiser to go out and, and relook at the property post-hurricane to make sure it was okay. That that makes sense. Yeah, but those premiums are going through the roof. There's no question about that. Uh, they'll be up now because there's going to be some settlements. Uh, when that roof ripped off uh, in Spryfield, I was like, oh, please be Neil. Please be Neil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Never, never. No, this I wouldn't guy. wish it upon you. This but uh, like, I was like, you'd hear like, one ripped off in... Um, in Dartmouth and one ripped off in in Spryfield. Um, I think they were both flat roofs that had the pitch put on. And uh, a guy who does my roofing and, and one of my contractors was looking at one of these roofs and um, the person who put the pitch roof on top of the flat had literally just put down two by fours around the edge and tacked the roof to it. <laughs> and so the wind got up underneath there and just peeled it back like opening a can of beans. Um, <laughs> that's crazy. And I remember the last one that we had, what was it? Uh, in 2019, what was it, Dorian? Yeah. yeah that ripped a few roofs off as well in downtown. I remember that. Yeah. Um, but, again, just maybe check your policy and see. But, again, overland flooding and the act of God. And insurance is a funny thing. Like, you pay a fortune for it now. It is so expensive. And it's, like, awkward because it's, like, okay, it's only a $2,000 thing that I need to put through insurance. Is it worth doing it because my rate's going to go up? No, you have a deductible that's 5 or 10 grand. Or your house yeah. is so damaged that you're, like, Oh, insurance finds a way to not cover it because we don't actually cover like major damage. And it's like, what the hell? So anyways, take a look at your policy. Overland flooding is something that I was very surprised it didn't cover. Earthquakes. There's like a million things like that. Uh, it doesn't usually cover here. Earthquakes aren't really an issue. But um, anyways, I just want to bring that up because it was something that I think probably affected a lot of our listeners. Did you, so you didn't, you fared out pretty good. We had some knock on wood, man. I, I fared doors. out very well. I, I had, um, you know, some down tree limbs. And then some tenants, unfortunately, were without power for, in, in some cases, I think up to five days. But um, no water intrusion to speak of. You know, a couple sump pumps that were overwhelmed, but in unfinished basements. So, honestly, not bad. I just had a porta potty fall over at one of my sites. 
Oh, that's messy. That was, it was, yeah, it was my house actually. Send Josh to clean that I up. Still, I have a client. Shout out Josh. Yeah. <laughs> I still have a client who doesn't have power. Yeah, there's a couple kicking around, but in inside the city, most people have power, but certainly oh. in areas of the province, they do not. But Anyways, again, that's all, all really local to us, but um, let, let's uh, transition here. Um, and we're going to talk about rates because we always freaking talk about rates, but it's relevant to the housing market. Um, with the last increase, I was curious what was going to happen, if anything, um, to mm-hmm. fixed rates. And for three months now, the five-year fix has remained pretty constant between 45 and 5%, depending on lender and, and whatnot. Yep. Um, and what's interesting is in the last three months, obviously, the prime rate, um, the overnight rate, has gone up by 175 points, but the five-year fix has not moved. And this underscores the fact, and, and I mention this to people all the time, that the five-year fix is related to the bond yield, not related to the bank rate. It's different. Check out our previous episodes as to why, um, but it's it's um, good to see the fixed rate staying pretty steady, even though variable is raising up. Um, but it means now also that most people's variables, which would be prime minus a half or prime minus a point, are right now also sitting between four and a half and five. So right now, variable rates are effectively on par with the best five-year fixed rates that you can get right now. Um, and the Bank of Canada is going to raise probably by another 75 points anyway between now and the end of the year. So we are going to enter that period where the variable rate will be above the fixed rate for the first time in Jeepers, I can't even think of how long, but for a very, very long time. Um, and we've talked a lot about this, and I've been hardcore in the variable camp. Uh, I don't totally feel like I'm eating crow at this point, but I know um, you probably have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I was more of a fixed rate person. Uh, it depends on your situation. Uh, when we, we talked about it before, it all boiled back to being dependent on your situation. But I was a bit of a fixed rate person at that point in time because I felt that there was a couple hundred points to come. And there have been a couple hundred points that have come since then. And there's more to come. Uh, And so my feeling was it was about 200 basis points in the difference. Um, But if you took that, I think you would be in a lower position. And it would give you a fixed uh, number that you know that you're paying. I think in 12 to probably more than that, 16 months from now, your variable rate will be lower than that fixed rate you would have taken. But again, to give some, I agree. To yeah, give some the next, consistency. It's the next 12 months or so that it's going to be a question mark as to which is higher. Exactly. But I think to give some consistency uh, and some understanding of where your rate's going to be, it's nice to have done a fixed rate. And I think more on the commercial side because commercial rates are a fair bit higher. Like I just got a residential uh, variable quoted this morning and it's 5%, um, which is not that bad. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, I got a residential or a commercial variable quoted about a month ago and it was like seven point something percent like it was insane yeah and and that's in the banks don't even like on commercial side they didn't want to lend on a variable it was cheaper to take a two-year term than it was to go with a variable um and so yeah that's, and that's where my my push for the fixed rate concept was is they were a fair bit cheaper on the commercial side so at this point now i i would say yeah definitely take a variable unless you really are wanting some stability because always in the back of my head looming i'm like is there a chance that they're still going to keep running it up? Because like we've talked about, we have some concern and maybe not full faith in the idea of their inflationary numbers. I know the hot dog's going to bring inflation right back down to where it yeah. needs to be. But like, us down. There, there's some concern that there's some manipulation going on to the inflation numbers that might not reflect truly what's taking place. And like we're going to talk about in a little bit, interest rates have an impact on different things over a period of time. And we haven't seen 
the impact of the interest rates across the board yet. We are just starting to see almost the start of what they're going to do. Uh, and I think next year is going to be a telltale for that. Yeah, so. I mean, a couple things that are worth noting. Um, the the one challenge with opting into a five-year fixed rate is that your 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 break penalties are going to be higher, right? And as investors, mm-hmm. it is nice to keep the flexibility uh, the flexibility of a variable rate. And then, so the next question becomes, like, well, I'll just do a one year or a three year or something like that. But the one in three years, I think, are around five three to five five. Um, so again, now you've got that same cushion built in where it's like, okay, well then, still the variable is a little bit better, and I have that flexibility. Um, Obviously, if there was a period maybe six months ago where you could have locked in a two-year fixed rate, that could have been a pretty lucrative thing. But there's also the problem of qualifying. Like, remember, when you are qualifying, mm-hmm. um, you know, y- you either have to take your rate plus 2% or 525 whichever is higher. And, like, that's what you have to qualify at. Some people just can't qualify for the fixed rates. But, um, yeah. you know, that's going to... They're, they're both getting hard to qualify. And I, I saw a study. I don't know if you, you see it there. Um where it's something like almost half of buyers in Canada right now have decided to press pause on their search um, due, due to interest rates. Yeah. I, I, it's 44% of Canadian buyers are pressing pause due to higher interest rates, and 34% are saying that they're not going to press pause. I, I, and it's, it's, this like, speaks this to the is public a, sentiment thing. It, it does. Yeah. The one thing I think that is, is like it's, it's, I don't think it's due to higher interest rates. I think it's, it's a combination of things. Um, I think people, I think people are are wise to the idea that it's well, I guess it's because of higher interest rates, but it's all the things to come. Like I think everyone's unsure of what's to come. If if you told them that the rate's going to be seven percent now for the next year, and then or it's five percent uh, on the residential side for the next year, and then it's going to start going back down, and they had confidence in that, I think they'd still be open to buying. But I think well, it's if everyone's pausing because they don't know. Like, is it gonna stay where it is, or are we just gonna keep running up, or is the is the economy really gonna start to take a beat down? Because I think logically, if you take any of those buyers and you sit them down, and you say, "Look, we we've talked about it here before. You're gonna get that house for a fifteen percent discount. You're gonna pay a higher rate for the next twenty four months." Yeah, that was a great breakdown. Yeah. And then that that extra rate cost of twenty four months is gonna be twelve thousand dollars or twenty five thousand dollars, but you're saving one hundred and fifty on your house purchase. And yeah. so in three years from now, you'll actually be in for 150 grand cheaper than if you had signed a 1.83% mortgage uh, eight months ago price, yeah. at an inflated price. Yeah. And, and so I think they'd all buy at that, at that same point if they can still qualify. But I, I think there's a bigger... And I think a lot of people kind of get that. Um, but I think there's a lot of like concern about is there something worse to come. It's also kind of funny because I still think about it like, man, 4.5% on a five-year fix isn't too bad. <laughs> That's still so chill. And so... And it's been like that for three months. So people keep hammering their head on the overnight rate, the overnight rate, the overnight rate. Well, it's gotten to the point now where if you're getting new money right now, um, the difference between variable and fixed in this moment is moot. It's about the same. So you will make whatever decision um, you're more comfortable based on your risk sensitivity and your budget ability to absorb, say, another you know 150 points of, of variable increase. But... The interest rate that you can get on a five-year fix, if you're going that direction, is the exact same as it was three months ago, and you would then be holding that for the next five years, so you do have a pretty comfortable level of predictability, and also to your point, in the last episode, you're like, oh my gosh, people are going to all feel this stress, and they're going to have to sell off. Well, they can opt into a fixed rate mortgage right now at around four and a half, maybe five percent. So what is this? Like, I don't know that that's going to squeeze as many people as you think it is when you were like, oh, it could come down 25% because people are going to be squeezed. 
I don't think that people are going to have to sell off because simply of an interest rate. I think. Right. You think are, are, sorry, because of a mortgage of rate. Right. Yeah. I think it's the fact that they own a house. They own two cars. Right. Right. They don't yeah. eat, simply eat Costco hot dogs. They, well, they have a lot of other expenses that they're going to get beat up on. And we all know, like, the last two years, people have been frivolous and have bought a bunch of shit. I'm guilty of that they should not have bought because it felt like things were just going better because it just things just kept getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to borrow against. And so there's lots of ATVs and boats, yeah. uh, secondary homes, trips that have been booked, all these things that are, like, eating away at this money and yeah. during that time yeah. it kind of worked because money was just flowing out on top of it being cheap there was free money from the government going out all over the place yeah and so people had this ability to do that now they cut off the free money they made the money that's out there way more expensive and so yeah the mortgage rate's not gonna necessarily kill them but like car rates are ridiculous like vehicle financing is insane um and and like so then you start kind of building up this your line of credit home line like or not even home line of credit the unsecured lines of credit that most people have one they're like maybe five to twenty thousand yeah that's what actually kills people not their mortgage payment totally yeah, those are now like nine percent like nine ten eleven twelve percent uh because they're un- unsecured any unsecured stuff that you have uh anyone who had investments in the market that they might have been relying on the market took a big beating so they they, lo- they yep. drew and so they might have had to draw on that and now they're like okay it was a hundred now it's down to 70 plus i have to draw on it so now i'm just i'm selling at the bottom getting nuked uh, so I think like that combination of everything going on, uh, some people might be like, you know what, I can still get out of my house a little bit ahead right now. I'm going to make that that sale. Or if they're in a rental position and they have all these other things financed, like their rental rates, if they moved any time recently, their rental rate was like, oh, I was paying $1,200 for that same space. I'm paying $1,750 now. Um, on that note, I'd like to jump in just quickly to update some stuff on the 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 car market because I mentioned it yeah, and yeah. I talked about it when we in the last one about the luxury car market. Okay. This is something that I've kind of learned about because I've been digging into it further and it's not just simply because people are less apt to spend and that's what's causing the car market to slow down and this is the same with the watches and luxury goods segment. The luxury car market and like the G-Wagon is a prime example. Those prices were so inflated. What was happening is it was there's a market behind the scenes between all the dealerships so you have the producer Mercedes, you have the dealers, which is actually Mercedes dealerships, as well as exotics and used car dealerships and all that. And then you have the actual baseline consumer. And I'd say there was more G-Wagons or more luxury cars trading their hands with the dealers, and they were wanting yeah. to stockpile them as a hedge. They were basically investing within these cars because what happened is, okay, Mercedes... Especially when they had no new inventory. Exactly. Yeah. All these companies, whether it be tech uh luxury goods vehicles were all saying we're not gonna be able to produce at the numbers we want so that's gonna force up the values of these things so people started stockpiling so dealerships started stockpiling which caused this inventory crisis and they would sell one at this marked up price and that was a proof of concept they'd be like well look we just sold an f-150 for hundred and twenty thousand dollars or a bronco for 50 over sticker or a g-wagon for a hundred thousand over sticker and so then that justified them going to auction and buying a bunch of them yeah, overpriced, but yeah. the auction was just between two dealers, and so the dealers were holding all this inventory and holding the bag, and they were artificially creating this this value uh, bump. The second rates went up, and people and then the dealers dealers now have to sell because the rates went up, and they buy on lines of credit. So now they were trying to start Ooh, to dump some yeah. of their inventory, and the second they all started trying to dump at the same time, the values started coming way down because there never really were consumers. There was the odd person 
buying these cars at these fifty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars. But it's low sample size. But it yeah. was low sample size, and there was never they were never consuming as much as actually what was going on. And so dealers were sucking up all the inventory, and it was a back end uh, thing going on. So I want to just mention that because if you guys listened to the last one where I talked about luxury goods market and kind of why I thought the the market was falling apart. I've been digging into it more, and I'm starting to find out this is what's going on. Watches were a big thing as well. Watch dealers, like that's half of the game. That's where they make a lot of their money is trading between themselves. Is they're they're ordering 15 from from Rolex, and then they're getting them, and then they're selling them off to a bunch of dealers that are smaller that can't get their hands on them. Yeah, and they're marking them up, and those dealers are stockpiling them because they're investing in it. Like it's it's a funny game uh, that goes on, but. Anyways, long story short. Yeah, I mean, it gets a little pyramidy, and then you know things start to start to collapse down. Start to collapse. So that was an update I want to make because I talked about the cars. But going back to what you said, I don't think the mortgage payment is going to be the reason uh, why I, they have to sell. I don't think it's that simple thing. And their interest rate on their home. Well, it's I the overall it's cost else. of borrowing across the board, especially unsecured credit and the the overall debt to GDP or debt to household income. Um, here's a, a random take. I think that we have sort of turned the corner on inflation. And here's why I, I think this. Like the thing that frustrates me so much with the Bank of Canada, so and I commented on this to someone. Someone posted something about uh, you know rates maybe going to eight percent, and which I don't think they're going to go there. Um, the Bank of Canada did absolutely nothing while like the horse was running out of the barn. Right? They did nothing. They were super slow to react. They made no changes. And now, so like when inflation was going up, they were super slow to act. They did nothing. But now. Inflation is slowing a little bit. It's still out of control. We're talking like from nine percent to like eight point three to seven point five to like seven point one. Like yeah. you know, we're we're slowly dragging this thing down. But what did they think was going to happen? That they would raise the rate and overnight inflation would go from record, you know, near ten percent down to two, right? Like one small increase. It takes a long, long, long time to trickle through all levels of the market. And the first thing to respond is the housing market. Like we've talked about how housing is a lagging indicator uh, from a, a valuation standpoint, but the overall market responds almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Like, look at what they did, you know, with this increase, even before this most latest one or two increases. As soon as they turned that dial, immediately like the faucet shut on the housing market like yeah. it has been a a collapse in volume now i think we said it was six months in a row yeah. that housing volume uh, listing down. like has gone down so that happened almost immediately the second thing that happens is people stop ordering things you know i stop ordering stuff online um companies start start ugh, stop ordering product that they feel that they can sell that ordering cycle shrinks up because yeah. they can't rely on future sales. But that takes a little bit of time as well, yeah. right? Because they're still filling their existing demand in the moment. They already have orders placed six months in advance, et cetera, et cetera. But now they know things are contracting. They know their ability to borrow on things that they want to buy and then resell uh, is getting limited. So that takes a while for ordering to slow down. Next, profit slows down. So people are spending less money. There's less things being sold. So profit slows down. And then unemployment happens. Like it takes a long friggin' time for that to trickle through. And we've talked about this with unemployment. It doesn't happen. Like you don't show up one day and they're like, hey, inflation's up, interest rates up, you're fired. Right? Like you have a contract. It's been collectively bargained or what have you. Or maybe you're on a a six month that, that can't be terminated. Or maybe just you know, your employer is trying to weather this storm. Unemployment doesn't happen right away. But the effects of the interest rate today 
will go through the economy for the next 6, 9, 12, potentially even 18 months. So we don't actually know if the interest rate today um, is enough to curb inflation. I actually think if we just froze right here and let the process unfold, we would continue to see inflation come down. But they're not having any patience, which is ironic because they did nothing before. They just waited and waited and waited. And now they're turning the knob every single month as if what like magically it's going to stop things overnight. It doesn't work that way. I think they could ride this out and what's going to happen, and they've now been pretty open about it, saying like, we're going to have unemployment, we're going to have a recession, that is going to be the cost of this, which means you're going to bear the brunt of it. People, everyday people are going to be unemployed. That's that's how this has to happen. But I think we're already at a point where if they just did nothing more, they're probably already there because they've broken the housing system and now they're going to try to break the, you know, complete all of the, the consumer industry and then break employment. So I don't disagree with you at all. Uh, everything I think is, is true. I just don't think that, like, I, I think they know exactly what they're doing. Like, I, I, this is something they are forcing a recession. Like, big business, big investing, big money. Well, no, but this is just the start of it. Like, they're they're going to go to a point where it's, like, general, like, actual hurt in the marketplaces. But that will come, I think, if they do nothing more and just let the the fruits of what they've done come to harvest. Like, we would well, already have this probably. recession with what's here now. But they're going to continue to turn the screws I think excessively for no reason. Like we're already there, the market already is acting like we're already there. But I think you're you're thinking like, like like they're doing it to a point to take control of the market. I I think they're doing it to literally force it into the gutter to allow the opportunity. Like on like a big big financial scale, like big money. I'm a true believer of like this is a completely forced to the point where like it's going to be collapses. It's going to wipe out like small financial institutions it'll wipe out a lot of small time investments like it's designed to literally drive Why? people down because it provides opportunities for big businesses to like every time you see this out of this coming out of this you will see the banks like you said before they're going to profit immensely huge corporations are going to profit immensely it's going to allow them to reposition make the changes they need to make uh, establish new business sectors that they want to establish buy up stuff at, at hugely discounted rates like it's so an this is your your, your back end conspiracy this stuff this is my yeah. back end conspiracy stuff but that like but it, it, it kind of like it, it checks out when you look at like over history it, that's always what's happened though like yeah it, it is 100% you, you think, to what you're saying like you do not think that the economists that that are a, port, a part of this that are making the decisions to crank these rates up aren't forecasting and understanding that w- AI alone, like the computer technology available today, could run a model that will simulate what's going to happen with the rates probably to like a 97% accuracy level, if not higher. And so they can probably run and see if they froze rates today where things would level out. And I agree with you that I think things would yeah. level out, if not even dip a bit, like a fair bit, actually. And so I think them continuing to dial it up yeah. is just pushing that dip further. Like I think they know exactly what they're doing. I, I don't think this is like a. Like they portray this thing of like, okay, we're like we're trying this and that, and like we're seeing how it goes. But this is not 1935 anymore, where it's all newspaper based, and like we got to test the market, see what's happening. This is like they have so much data, technology, and control, and understanding of what's going on. They can forecast, they can project, they can yeah. see. This is a this is a decided thing that is taking place, and it's, so, it's learning to weather it and run through it. What's so frustrating then is then people aren't mad enough because they go up there and they go, oh, it's just not working yet. We need to do it more when actual understanding of markets 
you know, shows us that it takes time. So them saying up that there is, is knowingly saying something that's misleading, and people are just like, oh yeah, it, it sucks, it's too bad. Uh, but they, under the guise of like, we need to do this. This is our tough medicine, you know, to get this inflation down. People are like, well, you know, it is what it is because I need to get prices down on my stuff. But they also are being a bit lied to. I feel by the Bank of Canada. One hundred percent. This is this is kind of a side project and a bit of a digression, but like. This is part of the reason I wanted to do this. This is also part of the reason why I always loved YouTube. Because if to me, it felt like a, a truthful space where people, like, that's where I learned a lot about my interest in finance. And I learned a lot of things regarding real estate and banking and, and all that kind of stuff. That's, it's not necessarily the exact educated way, but it's an interesting take where people are able to share their opinions and, and logic versus I found the general media that, like, the news, the TV-based stuff is so controlled that they don't tell you anything that's outside of the standardized norm. Um, I sound like a crazy conspiracy saying this, but like that's part of the reason that like a lot of these podcasts are so good because it's people who are like have a general understanding of it are in the weeds of things that can explain it, like their take on what's taking place. And so I, I don't know. I think that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this. Um, and part of the reason I think I've, I've listened to a lot of people that on podcasts and YouTube because it's like a more realistic perspective based on what I think is like, all the facts versus what what the news and the media that presents to majority of the population is not media and facts like we spoke with somebody today that's going to come on later on the pod and she explained her side and she said the media presented it like this and it didn't make any sense it wasn't what i was saying to them and i'm I'm, I'm, i want to say i'm a victim of that too i've talked to the media and then they presented something that was very different than the conversation that we had and it was a very different tone and it's it's a mixture of clickbaity as well as kind of what they have to produce it's like tons of people who worked at the washington post there's articles about how uh there was guys there that worked there that had made negative toned articles about amazon years prior and then bezos bought washington post guess whose jobs disappeared it was just by some weird fate that those guys ended up going missing or those same editors now make yeah. articles that are super amazon positive yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, now this episode's going to get this shadow banned, sent, sent down the bottom. This, that's <laughs> proof of concept. It's going to get shadow banned and put yeah, sent down yeah. the bottom. It's well, another conspiracy well, what's episode. What's really frustrating is, is it makes it hard to make financial decisions because you're like, well, all the economic drivers would indicate that we are at a rate where, like, you can kind of predict it. You're like, okay, by the end of the year, and this is where we're, we're thinking, like, all right, you know, the bank rate will be somewhere around 3.25 to 3.5 and uh, by the end of the year. And, and um, it was going to be a bit higher than that, but not not a crazy amount higher than that. Yeah. Um, but that would do the following: it would break the housing market, mm-hmm. which it has. Mm-hmm. Um, the markets would get crushed, which they have. You'd wipe out a significant amount of, it, of it's net worth. It slowed the housing market, and it's it's depreciated the market. I would say it hasn't broken. Okay, it, it, it's I, I don't know what you call like six months of contraction. Like you know that that that's pretty fractional. People losing their houses. Okay, I don't think the measure should be people losing the houses. If people lose, you know, fifteen to twenty percent of the equity in their house, totally. that that is a collapse, That's huge. right? And and we talked about how it's it's over a trillion of household um, net worth lost. I'm not so I just mean like you would think rationally and from an economic perspective and and all that good stuff that that would suffice mm-hmm. and they would let that bear out because that would be the correct thing to do, and then they don't do that, which makes you think, well, how am I supposed to make any financial decisions? if the rules kind of don't apply, if common sense doesn't apply, and if there's no 
checks and balances and you get Neil's train of thought, which is like there's something going on behind the scenes. It's, it's very, very frustrating. But uh, we're getting long. I, like we got to save some room. We've for gone off on the side, here. but I think I think this is part of. I think and some people comment if you if you disagree or or agree. But I think some people listen to this and all sorts of other sources of media for the simple fact that they don't necessarily trust 100% what gets presented to them in the standard form media. And I, you know what I mean? Like, I think they're trying to get an alternative perspective and an alternative opinion. They're trying to create their formulate their own idea through getting a lot of opinions. And I think the value and why the general grassroots concepts like YouTube and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of those have grown so much is because people are hearing the, the truth. Not necessarily truth, yeah. a different perspective that isn't something that as maybe as manipulated. Yeah. But well, anyways, long story short, to answer it, that's why I yeah. think that they know exactly what they're doing with the rates. And I think it's, to what you're saying, I think they, I agree with you. I think we've gotten past the hump. If it's starting to go down and it's consistently gone down, unemployment, unemployment's starting to go up, the housing market is slowed. Like I think we're at a point where they could cool off the rate hikes and things would go totally fine. Like it, w- it would definitely still beat people up a lot. There would still be lots of carnage over the next year, but it, it, and it would, would slowly bring down inflation. It would slowly bring down inflation and it would eventually regulate things and it wouldn't be a, like a massive fall off. But I think they're going to keep going until it is a massive fall off. And that is intentional. Well, thanks for listening to this point. Uh, again, if you have any theories, if you have any comments, please put them down below in the comments. Please press that like button. It means so much. I just want to hit up a couple things, uh, just maybe on a lighter note. Um, the New York Times did this story on apartments in Tokyo, mm-hmm. 95 square feet, the, I'm which not, is approximately this studio space. Honestly, doesn't blow my mind. That's kind of big, like for over kinda there. Big. Well, for over there, for over there, for over there. And well, let me finish what I'm about to say. So, <laughs> ladies, be advised. Neil's perception of what big means is a little <laughs> <skewed>. <laughs> two and a half centimeters. So, um, <laughs> this is about nine inches, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> don't we'll tell see me what it's not. Has to get edited. See what so, no, I don't mean it's kind of big. That is extremely small, but. On the flip side, and again, go to YouTube and type it in, but cage cage houses. And so in Cheapers. in Asia, in Japan, there's also a giant, like that's an apartment. That's listed as an apartment. There's an underworld within Tokyo of, I think it's like hundreds of thousands of people now that live within actual cages. And those cages are about six feet long, and they're maybe two feet by two feet. It's, it's a little- what? That's a coven, bro. That's not a cage. No, but people there are like vampires. There's, there's hu- up like this. Legitimately, there's hundreds of thousands of people that live in these, and they pay rent. What they're doing is they're taking apartments like this, and they will stack all these cages everywhere, and they rent them out. And people live in this, and that's a lot of the like the the oh the, the working population, not like the. Um, Basically, minimum wage over there, like those types of jobs. Yeah, that's what these were too. Like, uh, so ninety-five square were, feet, were, like that's your own space. Twenty-year-old, like you know, they're in their twenties, and it's got twelve-foot ceilings, so they do a lot. You have the bed upstairs, and you got ninety-five square feet, and they pay about four hundred to seven hundred ish in rent for those. Um, that's that's not like that doesn't that's psycho. Well, psycho. It's it's psycho, but that I'm looking at this. That's like four dollars a square foot for rent, for residential yeah. on a monthly basis. I pay four dollars a square foot for rent on a monthly basis. Like it's it, it's it's insane. It's yeah, crazy that there's ninety five square foot apartments. Insane. But my thing is over there they have cage apartments that are like people are literally living in cages together and it's not like there's like one family doing this. There are like the population of Halifax is doing this over there. Yeah, that's wild and, and um it's it's just hard to wrap your head around what's going on 
in the world with all this stuff. And we talked a lot about China and the Evergrande, Evergrande uh, situation over there. And now the Chinese government is bailing them out. Did you hear this? No, I haven't heard this. Um, so vacation, they, they say they're resuming almost all of their stalled projects. They had some like 700 and some odd stalled projects, and they're now resuming like 680 of them. Uh, and this is in spite of the fact that the mortgage strikes have continued. They're up to like 340-odd projects now that have full-on mortgage strikes where where buyers are no longer going to pay their mortgages on those unbuilt properties. Um, but what the government has done is they have actually lowered interest rates, very much in contrast to what we're experiencing over here. They have strongly encouraged lenders to continue to lend to developers. And they have set aside the equivalent of $500 billion U.S. as a bailout to these developers to get the housing back rolling again. They, which, I mean, makes sense because it's such a integral part of their economy like you can't yeah it's weird to see them on such a different timeline than the rest of the world when everywhere else is trying to curb the economy jacking in inflation and all this and jacking interest rates and they're like are they behind us are they no i think i think us? they're like, way ahead it? of us i think there's a general uh again where it's kind of it's the communist nation so they can make their decisions their focus is purely on just massive massive growth um and i don't think they're so they're they're also manipulated by Big Corp and the the few people who have everything, but their way of doing it where they have control, they can just make decisions. They can just be like, all right, we're going to do a giant bailout and we're going to push this construction through and make it ramp up. Here, they need to blend in a facade to make a drop off take place, allow them to buy in a bunch of stuff and then regrow with it. There, if you want to make, if you're rich and you know someone politically, you can, or you want to become rich but you know someone politically, they can make you rich like that overnight, and that's just how that works over there. It's so corrupt. They they can almost focus as a whole as just growing the country and choosing who gets to win out of that. Um, and so that's yeah. allowing them to just focus on on enforcing their growth. Um, so I don't know. I think they're more focused on growth of the country as a whole. And where there's so much corruption, they can just pick who benefits from it. They don't need to kind of create these these downturns. It's uh, really interesting, though, how they turned the their sentiment and their opinion uh, uh of Evergrande like so quickly because they were just seizing their assets, taking over their headquarters, you know, calling their notes, and now they're like, mm, we're gonna bail you out now. So it's kind of I'm more I'm curious if something's going on behind the scenes there too. That's but anyway, a picture of a cage home. That's a picture of a cage home. Yeah, make sure the guys splice in. Oh my god, that's crazy. Uh, these aren't these aren't one offs. Like these are all people living in these. these Oh, these pitch are crazy. Hopefully, you guys can log in and, uh, and check those out. The cages um, all the way through the apartment. That's actual like ten physical cages. This is crazy. Ten. All right. On that note, Neil, Neil's going to talk about the new construction projects he have, which are very <laughs> similar to these cage houses, <laughs> except they're going to be lobster traps because <laughs> we'll never forget our East, East Coast, Coast pride. <laughs> East Coast heritage. We shouldn't make a joke about that. These people living like this. But you know, they when they interviewed the people that were living in these, a lot of them said, "These are my home. This is my home." Like I'm. Not a lot, but there were some people who were comfortable to be living there. And now there's startups. Like, there's startups in uh, China that are building, like, modern pod-style homes to replace the cages to make them a little more... Yeah, I mean, these people also love their 95-square-foot uh, houses, but it could just mm -hmm. be because, they're like, I'm just happy I'm not in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> so, who knows? No comment. No comment. Um, All right, we're going to push some of the stuff to next week's topic because yeah, we, we got to get stuff. into new construction here. Let's do it. So... Anyways, we've talked about before 
the we said the burn model is dead. And the burn model is not dead, but it temporarily is very difficult to complete because the tag out mortgages that you're getting are more different, like just lower loan to values because the rates are higher. So the debt servicing is not there. If you want to understand some of those terms I just said, uh, we talk about it in depth on Patreon. But basically, yeah, I just did a whole episode on the burn model and broke it down. And one of the things you'll notice is on the small scale residential, especially, it is not that juicy. On a larger scale, it still can be, but it, the gap's closing, right? Exactly. But on on a basic scale, the the income that a property generates is what they're using to qualify the mortgage that you're going to take out of that property. And now that mortgage is so much more costly. And yes, rents have gone up, but they haven't gone up proportionately. And so that mortgage you're able to take out is quite a bit smaller than what it used to be. Now, that doesn't necessarily completely nuke the value of your property. It just means you're leaving more equity in that property a lot of the time. It will degrade the value a little bit, um, but there's still a lot of equity being left behind that eventually sometime down the road you'll be able to get. So if you're not needing the money immediately or not like in that kind of crazy growth mode it doesn't hurt to still do it um but if you are still trying to do that where you want to grow we're, we're talking about some options with new construction now new construction's facing the same issue though where people are struggling to take out all of the money that they spend on construction oh yeah um, they're having to leave a lot of money in or even put put or new money in put, but, put yeah. new money in but we wanted to just dive into it a little bit because there might be some options out there with financing options that CMHC offer uh, to help you get there. And I think we've talked about this before, but the government's going to have to do something to help spur it. And I saw 100%. yesterday uh, a town here in Nova Scotia is offering, basically basically giving out the land for free, plus they're offering to pave the roads to help you go in there and build subdivisions or build apartment buildings. And so they're starting to kick stuff in. So you're going to start to see that happen. So even if you can't get the money out, you might be able to get some stuff covered by the town or community that you're working in, plus get a, um, a CMHC loan that allows you to get 100% of your cost. So you'll get no lift, but 100% of your cost yeah. is covered. I also think that there's a really good margin in the small-scale stuff. Like totally. six units and under, you know, even up house to 12 conversion. units. Yeah, house conversions, things like that. But we're talking new construction here. If you get the right lot and you can put up four, six units, I think you can do really, really well on those because yeah. you can build them for much cheaper. And, you know, even though appraisals have pulled Soft back GC. a little bit, they're still pretty juicy. Yeah. Um, so the small scale new construction is really interesting as well. Yeah. So we, what we want to talk about today, again, is on a high level, just kind of what the process looks like um, and then our overall kind of sentiment and takes on it um so the first thing we're going to kind of touch on is obviously everyone knows what a new build is that's a ground up there's no building there it's not a renovation you're starting from scratch putting a foundation in the ground and building upwards um there's two kind of main types when you're looking at apartment buildings and that would be wood frame construction and concrete construction pretty obvious wood frame it's it's built from all from wood concrete it's built from concrete so your sub the floors between everything is concrete you do get a hybrid model that people do a lot and that is where it's concrete on the main floor where the commercial spaces are and then above that it's wood frame the biggest limitation with wood frame is the the height limits from building code they've been up to eight stories now they're looking at doing mass timber that can go a lot higher than that Uh, concrete doesn't have a building height limit as far as I understand. Like steel concrete can go the moon, baby. To the moon, basically, as long as you have the engineering need and budget to get it done. Um, and so that's where you see downtown, all the downtown cores in every city. It's all massive concrete steel buildings. And then as you go into the uh, neighborhoods and you see those low rise, mid rise buildings that a lot of people live in and they're the big long buildings, those are all wood frame because it's a fair bit cheaper. Or it used to be a fair bit cheaper to build those. Um, and so they, they do that, but they're limited on their height. 
now the first the first item in, in doing any new build is land. Getting the land, sourcing the land, figuring out if you can yeah. build. So how that kind of goes about is first I mean, it depends. Like, there's a million ways because you bought a piece of land for a very large development. I think before you're in a position to do the development. Yeah, like you're starting to look at it now. But you bought that land how long ago? Five years ago, I would say. Yeah, and I you stubbornly bought a giant piece of land um, just because I knew there was so much value there, and I was um, <laughs> for I, I couldn't find anything else. I'm like, oh, I guess I'll buy this land, um, <laughs> and I got a favorable take back from the lender and all this good stuff. Um, and we talked about this before. The land is so crucial because if you want to make a play on a development whereby you put as little as possible into it out of out of your pocket for cash, the easiest way to do that is to get a smoking deal on the land. So in that particular case, like I bought the land for I think seven hundred thousand, and then I ended up uh, kind of having an appraisal for around three point five million. So nice. and and that took time. That took a development agreement. That took four years of appreciation. It took all that sort of stuff, and I had to carry it and pay those soft costs. But with some pay down, you know, and the amount I had to initially put in, I was virtually up three million dollars just on the land. So then, if you've got a project that maybe is thirty million dollars for the whole build, you've already got ten percent equity. Uh, now that's a, an extreme example, but it it stays true for. Um, land at all sizes. If you can find a real opportunistic buy on a house that's maybe two fifty or three hundred thousand, but it sits on a piece of dirt that could allow the construction of twenty units, all of a sudden, you know, at twenty five a door, that's a five hundred thousand dollar piece of land, and so you've gotten that lift of a couple hundred grand just in the land play. Exactly. What did you? And again, I know I've said this a bunch of times. We got a big science in here, but we will dive really deeply into what that actually looks like in a Patreon. But what were you? kind of basing on like when you looked at that piece of land what enticed you to be like this is because there was other pieces of land available that you could have bought um what kind of what were you looking at that was like this is a real reason i think i'll be able to get something here because it wasn't directly zoned like that piece of land when you went to go buy it it wasn't zoned like oh you can build zone for a triplex it was zoned for a triplex and some townhouses he bought a piece of land for some for 700 grand to build a triplex and some townhouses Uh and at that time a triplex wouldn't have even been worth 700 grand no, not at all. <laughs> um, I so under I understood in my local area kind of what the process was for development agreements, uh, and that's something that you can do by talking to a qualified planner or just being engaged in in your community development process, like going to some of these hearings, uh, talking to people at the municipal level, and and finding out. I just knew that there was enough dirt there, and it was on a main um, main road that I could go through the development agreement process. And while you never quite know what that's going to yield, I had a pretty good idea. Um, I also monitored other projects in the area and what they got for their massing. It's like, well, if that person can do this much over there, then I can do the same because my lot's effectively the same. So, um, and, and it was, you know, neighboring some other property I had. I think we've talked about that before. It's in my own neighborhood. So I bought it for sentimental reasons. I bought it because I knew there was a play there. Uh, I maybe, you know, bought it too early and built it, or plan to build it too late, but so I'm just kind of sitting on it right now. But that was the thought process. Two things I want to mention: when he says there's enough dirt, he didn't mean physically enough dirt. He meant the square Area. footage yeah. of the the space. Uh, you'll probably actually have to bring some dirt in, won't you? Uh, no, because there's actually a really nice grading to it. We'll, we'll we'll carve some out. We'll probably have to take some out, but two stories of parking, It'll right? Sh- so you got to take a little load. Yeah, let's go ahead in the parking garages. I love me some parking. Um, so I'll I'll comment on one that I bought. It was an acre of land. And 
it's got a duplex sitting on it, which was nice because it allowed me to finance based off the duplex. So I only had to put down That's 20%. Huge, 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 huge. If it has an existing structure on there that can be financed, it makes your life way easier. Yeah, and it's something that's going to basically carry the cost of ownership while I get the permit done on it. Um, but what I was kind of alluding to when I asked when you were trying to make the decision, like with this one, same thing. It was zoned for a duplex. Yep. And But I made the decision because around the corner, someone else had gotten approved in an apartment building. And next door to me, there was commercial, and I had frontage on a main road. And so all of those things made me believe, even though right now it is zoned for a duplex, going to council and being like, look, like it's on a main road. I have commercial abutting 400 feet of my lot. Uh, I also have it. I see that you guys approved an apartment building right behind me with the original same piece of like uh, zoning that I had. So, um, by looking at all of those things, it kind of gave me some confidence to to buy. So that was kind of something I wanted to just mention is like, it's not going to be as simple as like, boom, here's a lot. And you're like, oh, you just breathe. Oh, yeah, it's good for 40 units. Sweet. I'm just going to buy that. Because if that's the case, it's going to be marked up as a piece of developable land. And yeah. it's going to have a very high cost associated with yeah, it. Yeah, which is fine if you have deep pockets, but then you don't get the lift that I was mentioning off the top where you want to have that equity in the land that then can count towards your equity component of your financing of the whole project. You'd be buying it at that $3.5 million value. Right? Exactly. Because that's what it's worth then. Yeah. Um, so now you've got the piece of land and we've kind of already started talking about it a bit. Uh, you think something's going on there, but you need to go through the permitting process. You've gone further than I have. I have some in the works. I'm banging my head against the wall because it's a very slow process. It's not something that you can get, like, doesn't matter how crazy you go, at least in this local community, but you can't push it along too much faster than what their systems allow. Um, kind of what what does that look like for you and, and what, um, I guess... Yeah, so kind of <laughs> there's kind of two levels of it. Like, there's a development agreement, which then allows you to build something on a specific piece of land, and different municipalities will have different equivalents of a development agreement. Um, it's sort of like, well, there's what you can do as of right in that area because... Um, you know, that's just what we've said. That land can be used for this purpose. A development agreement is says, hey, you know, there's enough of an argument here to do something different. So let's have a conversation slash negotiation where we, me, the developer, and you, uh, the city, agree on some unique ability to do something else on this property. And that results in a signed development agreement that goes on the title of the property that says, you can build this on that property. And then permitting is, okay, you're allowed to do it. Now do it correctly and bring me all the technical side of it um, to start construction, the stuff you need to have signed off on by engineers um, and by all the utilities to actually then build the property. So, you know, you go from, um, you know, purchasing the, the land doing basic masking of what you think you can get there. Then you apply to the city to say, hey, is it cool if I build this? And then you start going actually through the the regulations and the code and the technical components of how to build it within the requirements of, of building code effectively. Exactly. The just, just talk a little bit more about the as of right. Um, that's like literally what is the lot is zoned for and you can build per the rules that have been applied on that lot. So again, just to break that off. So, and so sometimes you will find lots that as of right, you can find within the, sometimes these plan documents can be a little bit difficult to understand. You can see that you can build a fair bit of stuff. And now with locally our center plan, it allowed a lot of lots to be 
more easily understood as of right what you can do. Yeah. Uh, and so now you can say, okay, as of right, they don't say a number, a unit count, but they'll say, it'll give you dimensions of what you can build. Height or gross floor area ratio. Height, setbacks, yeah. close floor area ratio. And with that, you can determine, okay, I can build 40,000 square feet. And I know out of that, I'm going to get 80% utilization for units. And out of that, I'm going to build the units at an average of 700 square feet or something. And you can kind of quickly mass out what you're going to be able to build there. And then you can see, okay, wow, there's a lot of value in this, which is just a house. Um, Here, here's a funny uh, way to explain the difference between as of right and a development agreement. So there was a highly contested development site in Dartmouth um, where as of right, the owner could do very minimal things. You could build a house. You could maybe build a duplex. You could do a couple of things here and there. And one little thing, oh, you could also build a hotel. But anyway... Oh, it's yeah. like, whoa, whoa, wait, what's that last part about being able to build a hotel there? Um, that sort of stands out. But this was some antiquated old uh, component of the bylaws for that particular area that says, as of right, you can build a hotel there. And of course, no one ever thought you'd build a big hotel in this location in Dartmouth. Maybe there would be like a strip motel or something like low rise. When they put that zoning in, there was no density there to exactly. ever there was s- no service a hotel. That you would ever have a hotel there. So years later, this developer's got the land. They're like, listen. I can build a hotel here, <laughs> and I've got plans for a beautiful 12-story hotel. <laughs> However, instead, I would like to just build an apartment building, and can you give me a 10-story apartment building? And so the latter, the application to build the apartment building instead that went outside the as-of-right ability to build a house, build a triplex, or a hotel, had to go through the development application process, which was a negotiation with the municipality. And the neighborhoods were like, the neighbors were like, we don't want that apartment building here. And the city, very rightly, was noting like, I understand that, guys, but if he doesn't build the apartment building, he can just build this big hotel. (laughs) And which would you rather in your neighborhood? The apartment building or the hotel? And the neighbors were like, He's never going to build that hotel. Let's call his bluff. And they fought him tooth and nail. And eventually, the city got him down to, I think, an eight-story residential building. Yeah. He was like, okay, I'll just do an eight-story residential building. And still, some people in the neighborhood fought him. They took him to the utility uh, review board. And it was a nightmare. And he says, you know what? The market's changed. The hotel industry is bumping. Guess what's there now? And he pulled a permit for a hotel. And guess what's there now? Yeah. So... As of right, he could do the hotel. He was trying to do a development application uh, for something else, um, and he got obstacles, so he went with what he was able to do as of right. But that shows you the difference between what you can do as of right and then how an application would work. Um, on a side note, that's been the slowest construction project in the history of time. It is taking a while. Like, like three stories up. I don't no, know. No, there are more stories, but it's still con- concrete skeleton. It's it's been paused at that for quite some what time. What they're doing. That, that's been a weird site know. with a lot of issues. But yeah. um, anyway, so now you own your land. You've gone through the permit process. You have figured out what you can build. You've gotten the city on board. Okay, you can build 50,000 square feet, 60 units. Now you actually want to build the thing. Time to do some budgeting and figure out what you can do. Uh, and what that's going to look like because it's going to be budgeting and financing. These are two steps, but they're kind of really one. And it's something yeah. you probably start even once you're through. Like the second you have a rough idea from the permitting process, you're going you're gonna to start this because it's a big task to get the numbers dialed in and then getting a bank on board because you're no longer talking about... Um, it's not just even the, the, the quantity of money. It's not necessarily because it's so much money. It's also the idea that they're getting involved in a very risky process. There's not anything there. Like, if you default on a house, the bank doesn't want your house. But if you default on a framed-up house, they really don't want 
Yeah, uh, half completed project. A with half huge completed liability. project. Yeah. So a lot of times there's multiple banks involved. Uh, there's a ton of insurance problems. Like there's 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 a lot that goes into it. Um, so for you on the budgeting side, you again also on these big projects, banks usually won't let you build self build. you and you probably aren't yeah. in a position to if you haven't done it before. Like. Going through a self-build on a large building is very difficult. Even on a small building, they're going to be like, so wait, you're going to build this four-unit, this six-unit? Like, who yeah. are you? Yeah. Like, oh, well, I do it on the side. It's my side hustle, but I've got a great, I have a sick know. IG handle that, that, <laughs> I, that I renovate some, some Yeah, houses. like, they're going to want to see more than that, um, so they might force you to bring a contractor on either way, uh, and they'll have price analysts, like cost a- analysts through the whole process. Um, and this was the challenge with why I kind of, you know, paused my development, is that one of the things they do like this design phase, like once you have the approval, you still then have to go design the building and then you kind of have to, to price it out and you put your best estimates in. But we're in a marketplace where those estimates were getting out of date in 30 days and the prices were just going up and up and up and up and up. So the cost to build it was ballooning like crazy. And then from a financing perspective, they build in a rate range. So they say, okay, it's going to take you 18 months to build this project. We know what the interest rate is now, but we don't know what the interest rate is going to be 18 months from now. So we'll build in you a nice juicy cushion of like 100 points, maybe even 150 <laughs> points. Well, What's happened over the last six months? 300 points, yeah. <laughs> right? So a lot of projects became untenable. And in my case, it was actually sort of a blessing in disguise that I wasn't midway through this project when these rates went up. Because then they would come to me and say, yeah, you can keep building it, but we're going to need you to put more and more money in. And you might get to the end of the project. And you know, rather than them being like, here's your nice, juicy refinance for your end finished building, they'd be like, yeah, we'll do that, but you need to come up with extra money. So there's still risks associated to it that are not dissimilar to the Burr model. However, we're both of the mind that there's going to be some government intervention to allow housing starts to tick back up with some more improved programs. Um, there's also, you know, you're at least getting newer stock. And, you know, if you can fashion it in a way that your capital upfront, your investment is small relative from, from a, a, a loan to value perspective, like if you can get into it with five or 10% down, isn't that much more exciting to then have a nice finished brand new building as opposed to doing a burr, flipping a single unit to maybe a duplex and getting like 15000 of your $30,000 investment back. Like a new build is pretty exciting in a lot of ways. So before we tap that off, a couple things I want to ask you about. Permanent costs. Mm-hmm. What did you face when you were talking about permanent costs? What yeah. kind of costs did you spend to get the permit? And then what were you paying on permit side? Yeah, I mean, your biggest permit here locally is your water one, which I think I squeezed in just before they raised it from 1800 to 3000 per unit. Um, and I was doing, that was for like a 50-odd, 60-unit building. So it's like $100,000 just to get my water permits. Okay. What did you spend on uh, like engineering, uh, consultants, planners, and all that kind of crap to actually get to the point of getting approved? Yeah, my total soft costs, I mean, uh, probably with architects and engineers to date, uh, plus a six-month design consultation, um, probably 250, 250000 You're including engineering in that? So, like, that's got your mechanical HVACs, your plumbing, all that kind of crap engineered out? or is Yeah, that- yeah, and some of them went further down, but, like, the geotechnical, the environmental, all the stuff that goes into to analyze your site, your surveys, all of these things. And typically that's handled through either your architect or um, your your contractor. Um, they essentially go out and source all these sub-trades. Um but yeah, yeah, it's it's hundreds of thousands of dollars of soft costs. Before building permit? Program. 
Uh, we didn't pull a bu- building permit, so I don't know. I couldn't speak to that, but okay. we didn't get to that point. But, but so you're probably about three fifty, four hundred thousand into this. Yep. Prior to having a building permit, prior to having a shovel on the ground. Yeah, and that's a very that that's a bigger project where it's again I think sixty units or it's it's been a while since I checked. Um, you know that that's a large project, uh, and that investment isn't lost. Like that has raised, and that that all counted towards what would have been my down payment component effectively. Yep. Um, so it's still value there in it. Um, so our costs can be financed in a new construction build. Yeah, it counts towards the overall cost of the project. So if you're paying that out of pocket, um, you know you do get equity credit for that. Exactly. Uh, so. You know, but it's still money out of pocket up front, yeah. right? That that you're doing to to try to get this project off the ground, and you're gonna have that same situation if you're building something smaller. Like if you're building a six unit building, like it's amazing how people want to plan this project, and then they turn their nose up at paying an architect like twenty thousand bucks or whatever. It's like, man, you need these people to do what they do. You have to budget that stuff in there. A planning consultation, surveying the lot. Um, all of these things, they're, they're kind of requirements. And if you're serious about it, you want to employ the right people to help the process go smoothly. The tough part is on the small scale, some of these costs, like they don't go up at the same rate. Like to do a 60 unit, you might have spent 100 grand with an architect. To do a six unit, it could be, like you said, it could be 15, 20,000 bucks. So you're doing yeah. 10 times the size project, but you're only paying an extra eight times or five times the cost. And so that's also why you want to do giant projects but it's very hard to get to that scale like you have to work your way through the process yeah so just understanding if you're listening that though those pro- those prices that Chandler's mentioning are not necessarily scalable yes the water uh water permit that would be and building permits like those things will scale but some of your soft costs overall for engineering architectural and uh, planners will not yeah. uh scale unfortunately but overall um how do you feel about the new construction outlook uh, moving forward, how do you feel about your bills? Like where where you see things going? Yeah, I mean that's still the the holy grail for me personally, and I'm gonna get there. But I am probably gonna first do, you know, something out of wood in the interim, smaller scale, stack townhouse sizing, just because I think right now price wise that's easier. Um, and then I do think long term. Building and, and building out of concrete really is the long-term hold stuff. The wood frame is good, I think, for for buying and, and maybe selling at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm optimistic, like I said, that that there's going to be an uh, intervention from CMHC and the federal government to um, make the numbers work. Because, frankly, the numbers don't work. And I, I posted some videos about uh, some uproar people had about the rental costs of some units on Agricola Street here in, in Halifax, uh, how crazy, they couldn't believe how expensive these rents were. And then in breaking it down, it's like, yeah, that he's losing, he or she, the landlord is losing money on some of those rents and making it back on some of the others because the margins are that low at, at today's costs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have a massive shortage of housing here if we don't change something really, really, really quickly. What, um, what were you quoted... Per unit cost, just a high level. It's about three thirty-five. Three thirty-five. That's not including land or any of the soft costs. Um, no, no, that included the land and, and soft costs. Okay, so yeah. your 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 total was around three thirty-five a door yeah. uh, to get those buildings up. Um, have you quoted any wood frame buildings? No, but there was a time where you were maybe ten percent lower for wood because wood was so expensive. Right. Yeah. So like, the, it wasn't much difference, and you obviously just get a way better product with concrete. Yeah. Um, but a way slower build, yeah. Right, so there's a bunch of trade-offs, and wood's coming back down a little bit. Um, 
you know, and there's some cool like over pour techniques with wood that are really good now too. Uh, so you may find that that 10%, which is not insignificant on a big project with like some steel, like hybrid builds is, is a good way to look at it too. Yeah. Yeah. I was quoted on wood frame for a hundred unit building and I think it was coming in around without land uh, and without the permitting costs around 265 a door. Um, so there you go. There's your 300 a door, really. And so, yeah, once you're all in, it's 300 a door. Yeah. And unfortunately, the values of the units were not 300 a door at the end. Well, this is the thing. Yeah. Um, it's like that that building, they were like, yeah, we can build it and be 335, and there were 335. This is exactly. And that's, that. what I was, that's what I was facing. Um, and exactly to what you said, we've, we've done a few reels about it before, and we've broken down kind of the costs associated uh, with building uh, and actually carrying the building and then what it looks like and what they need for rent to cover that cost. And a lot of people were like, well, we don't, we shouldn't be paying down your mortgage. So we did numbers where we removed the mortgage and we just included the depreciation because when you live in a unit, you do ultimately wear out the cabinets, you wear out the floors, you wear out the appliances, you wear out the plumbing and all the things that go into it. Uh, and so just utilizing a standardized depreciation and adding that in with the interest costs of carrying the building and all the other insurance costs and everything on top of that. And we still found uh, that these these rents need to be 17, 1800 Well, here's, here's some back of the napkin math, and this is what I, I posted in my video. So just say for really easy numbers, it was actually only 300000 per unit. And um, if you did conventional financing at the end with the, with the current environment that we're in, we're talking 75% loan-to-value. Obviously, these other programs have longer AMs, and you can get less money in. But in exchange for the longer AM, your payment actually doesn't change as much as you might think. You just have to put in less money out of pocket. So say you just did the rough numbers of a 75% loan to value. That means you're actually borrowing 225K per unit. So the mortgage per unit is 225,000, which at commercial interest rates right now, it's 6.5%, which would be a pretty good commercial interest rate right now, is just over $1,500 a month just on the mortgage. How psycho is that? Okay. But now you have to pay property tax and property tax on that unit is going to be about 250. So now you're at 1750 per month just to break even on that property. Now you have to insure it, which is probably $75 per unit. So you're at $18.25. Uh, most places are going to have at least water included. So now you're at $18.50. Some places will include heat. That's pretty common in new construction, but they're easy to heat. So you're probably up around $1,900. Uh, and then you have to uh, clean the common areas. You have to hire staff to work the buildings. You have to do plowing. You have to do shoveling. And you might actually want to make a profit at the end of the day. So maybe we call that $2,100, which means to break even on that property right now would be $2,100 a unit. So when you see a unit that you think is ridiculous because it's a bachelor unit and $1,700, realize they're actually probably losing $400 per month on that unit based on a per unit cost. And then the other ones that are $2,700, maybe for two bedroom plus den, they're making $600 on that. And that's kind of their, their window there. It is razor thin People don't like to hear it, but that's the truth of it. Um, so if you're wondering why the rent's so damn high, there again, you go. the big thing don't I want to explain is, it, yes, I mean, the listeners get it, but in that mortgage payment, yes, we're paying on principal, which is what everyone bitches about, but he's not including depreciation. So if you look at depreciation, 4% of that 300000 uh, that's twelve grand. that's 1000 bucks a month. So if you take out the principal payment, which is 1000 bucks from that mortgage, and you make it depreciation, it works out to kind of be the same thing. Um, and so realistically, like Chandler mentioned, that's what you need. You need two grand a month from a lot of these units to be able to to make it work. But before we end, we have to end on a more positive note here, because I've had a few thing, people but, come but, at but, me. But the appreciation too and the pay down, it's like, how do I get that? What, sorry? Like, how, how do you get it? Like they're saying, oh, we're, we're paying for your, your pay down, your principal investments. Like, yeah, that's net worth. 
But if I get it, like, how do, how do I get that? I have to sell it, and then I'm taxed at it anyway. Yeah, you're, you're right? losing like, so, on a monthly yeah. basis, which you need to operate and run the, the business. And when you do pull it out, you have to then renovate the building, which costs a ton of money, and yeah. fix a bunch of things. So, no, no, I, I get that. Yeah. Um, but, like I said, I don't want, we can't end on a negative note. <laughs> I had some people come up to me like, you guys end on negative notes. Oh, really? All right. So it's Hot dogs are still $1.50 at Costco. Go get one right now. They're freaking <laughs> delicious. They'll make your day, I promise you. And it's a beautiful fall, so just go outside and enjoy it. It is a lovely fall. We've got a banger episode coming up next week as well. Super excited about that. Uh, we've got regular content. The Patreon has continued to get loaded up. Uh, we've got some cool stuff about the DCS, you know, your debt service ratio. Uh, we've, we've got, got a website coming with a model. forum where we talk about deals. Yes, we've been talking about that for forever, so that is coming. Uh, and life is generally good, man. I mean, Neil was just in Italy, you know, because he's a he's a big shot. Uh, so <laughs> things are good with him. Um, you know, life's good. Life's yeah. good. Except for the, the car prices are going down. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Right, thanks right. for listening, guys. Next time. Thank you for tuning in for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us a rating and send us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Master Keys Podcast. See you next week. When, 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 when I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh.